If you've ever been in a church or a seminary chapel, when a denominational leader dropped by, you probably have some apprehension. Regardless of denominational peculiarities about what's about to happen. But the occasion of our being together today requires more than a denominational commercial. Not that I wouldn't enjoy the opportunity, so come have pizza. <laughs> we meet today, not just late in the semester, but on the Tuesday of Holy Week. And this is a time for focus on the things that are at the very core of our faith. In this text that we have heard read from Paul's first preserved letter to the church at Corinth, New Testament scholars, notice how carefully I said that, invites us to the core of our gospel faith. Did you hear the way the text opened? The message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. From the very beginning of the text, we find ourselves being drawn into a confrontation between different understandings of power. Because you see, on Good Friday, there is a confrontation between powers. On the one hand, there is the power of the political military order the power of Pilate and the Jewish leaders, the power of humiliation, the power of manipulation, the power of horrific violence, the kind of power that has no respect for anyone's body, including Jesus's, the kind of power that uses all the force it can muster until all the breath and all the life and all the blood comes out of one man's body on a cross. And that's what the rulers of the time describe as power. On the other hand, there's the power of God. And the power of God that we see demonstrated in the message about the cross is an entirely different kind of power. It's a power of tenacious, extraordinary faithfulness, the kind of faithfulness that was remembered by the passage Dean Still read at the very beginning of this service. We didn't conspire, but I kind of had a hunch he'd want us to hear from Philippians. A power that empties itself, that takes the form of a servant, that humbles itself all the way to the point of death, 
even death on a cross, a power that when the very last breath is taken, cries out into your hands, I commend my spirit, a power of that kind of extraordinary faithfulness that stops at nothing to love his own who are in the world, to love them to the very end. That's the power of God being revealed at the cross. It's a power that promotes and pulsates with an extraordinary kind of love that even in the face of the power of this world embraces and forgives. Do you hear him crying out from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing? Is that not a power of extraordinary love? Do you hear him say to the thief on the cross, Truly today you will be with me in paradise. Is that not a power that embraces? Don't you see from the very beginning, we're caught between two dramatically different visions of what power is. The visions are so different that when the rulers of this world see the power of God on display, they say, that's foolish. They say that's foolish because as he is suffering and bleeding and dying, they're playing the first century version of Xbox right at the foot of the cross. Tell my 11-year-old son I mentioned Xbox in the sermon. He'll be most impressed. Those standing near the cross are so unaware of the kind of power that's being demonstrated right before their eyes that, as Paul would later say, Jews demand signs. What is it the Jewish leaders cry out from the foot of the cross? Hey, if you're really the Messiah, do you hear the taunt in their voice? If you're really the Messiah, put on a show, come down from the cross, save yourself. And then once we see the sign, we will believe Do you see the stark confrontation between one understanding of power? Power is that which dominates. Power is that which manipulates. Power is that which violates. Power is that which annihilates. Power is that which desecrates. And power is that which gives and gives and gives and gives and loves and loves and loves and loves and embraces even those who hurl the insults and the taunts. There's a confrontation. And Paul has the audacity to proclaim in this text that the power we see in Jesus is real power. And that the power being trafficked by the Roman and Jewish authorities is nothing compared to what they think is weakness. The message about the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, don't misunderstand. If you read this text from 1 Corinthians carefully, which I encourage you to do, you'll see that Paul does not believe that what happens on Good Friday is an isolated event that is locked away in history that we can analyze from a safe distance and have conversations about over expensive coffee. You have good coffee in Waco, I have noticed. Do you notice that the verb tenses in this text are in the present? It doesn't say the message of the cross was to those who were perishing foolishness or to those who were saved the power of God. No, it uses the present tense, is. It says those who are perishing, those who are being saved. And as that were not enough, in verse 23 of chapter 1, when it says we proclaim Christ crucified, and in verse 2 of chapter 2, when Paul says, I decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, even the, the verb tense, crucified, <laughs> doesn't speak only of an act completed in the past. Fact check me on this, but Richard Hayes, that good Methodist scholar, reminded me that that kind of uh, present perfect participle speaks of an act completed in the past that still has effect in the present. So that the power of God being unleashed beginning on Good Friday is not confined to Good Friday, but it still confronts us in the present. It still embraces us in the present. It still breaks out among us in the present, whether we are being saved or whether we are perishing. The confrontation is not buried in the past, removed from our grasp, but rather it is still happening in the present, in Waco, in this moment, in this place, in our hearts and in our minds, and you cannot be separated from it. I think it was... 1981 or 1982 when I first discovered this present power of the message and the story about the cross <laughs> I was 13 and in middle school um, I'm going to take a big risk of vulnerability and wonder if I'm the only person in this room for whom middle school was not fun Um, it's easy in middle school to believe that you are among those who are perishing. <laughs> and it is incredibly easy in middle school to believe that you are among those who are worth nothing. It is incredibly weak. It is incredibly easy to be weak and alone and wonder if you have any value, especially if, okay, so here's a little advice. If you want to survive in middle school in the early 1980s, it'd be better to be a football player than a violinist, but I was a violinist and not a football player. You understand. To us who are being saved, you see. Um, that eighth grade spring, 
was excruciatingly, isolatingly, oppressively, abusively lonely. But I grew up in one of those families where uh, you went to church even on Thursday night if it was open. And our church was doing an unusual thing in 1982. We were having a Maundy Thursday service. And so we, we, uh, we went because it was open. And um, there was a Tenebrae service that night. So the, the story of the crucifixion was being retold. And candles were being extinguished. And a sermon was preached. And then it came time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I was sitting on the second row about right there. And as the elements of communion were passed, the choir stood to sing Gilbert Martin's setting of that odd poem at the cry of the first bird, they began to crucify, O cheek, like a swan. And the anthem begins with a, um, a funeral dirge that brings the hearers face to face with the finality of what happens at the cross. And as I, I held the elements of communion in my hand, and as the choir was singing, and the organ was playing, I was overwhelmed by the sense that in spite of my weakness and in spite of my loneliness and in spite of my inadequacy, in fact, in the face of all those things, Jesus loved me anyway in ways I could not describe. And when that service ended, I wandered out, staggering away from that holy Thursday, having been confronted by a love that would not let me go, that I'm still trying to work out the significance of. You see, the message about the cross is the power of God for us who are being saved in this present moment. And that love is not confined to Good Friday past. That love is available on this Holy Week, on this Tuesday, on this Thursday, on this Friday, because Jesus will not stop at anything to reach us in our brokenness and lift us into his arms of love. It is a love and a power that will never let us go. The message about the cross, when it is preached, even by foolish preachers like me, when it is sung, when it is read, when it is prayed, we come face to face with the power of God. I wonder how the power of God is meeting us today in the message about the cross. Is it, as Paul says, inviting you to reflect on your own calling, your own calling as a disciple, your own calling as a minister, the own, your own strange and wondrous journey that brought you to this place? And imagine this, in, the, in this century, in the midst of a pandemic, you said yes to a call to ministry. What kind of powerful foolishness accounts for that? You see, the confrontation also forces each of us to make a choice. 
Because you see that power that humiliates and manipulates and dominates and eradicates is still the preferred power option in a world that is perishing. And sometimes I hear folks say, well, you know, to, to get anything done in this world, you have to, you know, this is the decision the chief priests and the scribes made. To get anything done in this world, you have to go along with that kind of power because that's how you get things done. You know, you have, to, you have to get something, you have to get something passed in the legislature. Oh, please don't wait for that. We serve a God who raises the dead. We who are being saved still have to decide whether our faith and our words and our lives and our ministries are going to be points where the power of God overflows in this world with love and forgiveness and tenacious faith or whether we're going to be doing the bidding of the power that dominates and manipulates and obliterates. You see, you and I are not just confronted by remarkable love when we hear the message about the cross. We're brought to a point of decision when it comes to our lives and how we speak and how we live and how we serve. Which power we practice? Which power will we speak? Which power is on display in us? The contest, though, doesn't end on Good Friday. <laughs> you see, this is the thing about this contest that Paul has opened up for us. When Good Friday ended, who do you think thought they had won? Who do you think was celebrating? Which power looked like power and which power looked like foolishness? <laughs> but the message about the cross has never just been about the cross. What was it, Todd? Dean Still? Um, he humbled himself to the point of death. They took his broken, battered, obliterated body and they sealed it in a tomb. We showed him and them. And then they went to do whatever it is you do to celebrate that kind of victory in Jerusalem.
And then early in the morning, on the first day of the week, while it was still very dark, several women, they bought spices, you see. And they went to the tomb. And y'all, you're not going to believe what happened next. The message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, power. Thank God. 